Hey everyone, thanks for joining us. This is the Anesthesia Learn on the Go podcast series from the University of Kentucky Department of Anesthesiology. In these episodes, we will provide a high-yield clinical review of some of the common topics encountered by anesthesiologists at all levels. The following episode will be recorded by a member of our department at UK. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at UK Anesthesia and subscribe to the University of Kentucky Department of Anesthesiology YouTube channel for our video cast. Now fire up your headphones, relax, and let's talk anesthesia. Hello, my name is Dr. Douglas Dower. I'm one of the fourth year residents. I wanted to talk with you today about prolonged awakening from anesthesia. Uh, go through that differential and talk about some of your options on finding a diagnosis and potentially treating those causes. So I, I thought this was a, a good topic to cover because I just felt like I hadn't uh, had it reviewed as well as, as maybe I would have liked uh, during my training. And so I wanted to try to break this down into a, a brief overview to help you all when this might come up in your clinical practice. So first, what is delayed awakening after anesthesia? How can we define it? How can we recognize it? So I went through and reviewed several articles in the literature and found a variety of definitions. But the general consensus was that delayed emergence be considered when patients had not re uh, regained the anticipated level of consciousness and remained unresponsive within 15 to 60 minutes after discontinuation of all anesthetic agents. So if you were performing an anesthetic with, say, a propofol infusion, and that propofol infusion has been off for 30 minutes, there's no other anesthetics that have been given, the patient remains unresponsive, you should definitely be going through this differential in your head at that time. Okay, what are causes for delayed awakening? For myself, I wanted to keep this simple, so I broke it down into three main categories. The first being pharmacologic, the second category being metabolic or temperature disturbance, and the third category being neurologic causes. So first, pharmacologic. So consider drug overdose, drug-drug interactions, altered metabolism of drugs, impaired clearance. And when we talk about these drugs, we specifically think about opioids, benzodiazepines, sedative hypnotics, volatile agents, anticholinergic drugs, neuromuscular blocking agents. Or an another one to keep in the back of your mind is drugs that the patient may have been taking before um, they presented to you, before uh, before they came in, and drugs that you didn't necessarily give them. So things like illicit substances or alcohol that they may have been taking prior. The second category is metabolic or temperature disturbance. So that can be broken down into hypercarbia, hypoxia, hypoglycemia or hyperglycemia, electrolyte disturbances, specifically hyper or hyponatremia, hypermagnesemia, or hypercalcemia, and then consider hypo or hyperthermia as potential causes of delayed awakening. And then third, uh, neurologic. So neurologic causes could be a seizure, stroke, elevated ICP, hypoxic and ischemic encephalopathy, or hyperperfusion syndrome, which you may see after carotid endarterectomy. Okay. If those are different causes, then how should you manage a patient uh, that you suspect has delayed awakening? Again, there are many approaches to this situation, but I'll quickly go through 
one of the approaches that I found in an article that I reviewed that seemed to at least make some good sense. So first, start with ABCs. Assess airway patency, breathing, and circulation. Oftentimes, for ourselves, we'll be in the operating room and have a secure airway already, but it's still good to run through these basics at the beginning. Turn the patient to 100% FiO2 if they're not already on that. If they don't already have a secured airway, provide some jaw thrust, consider an oral or nasal pharyngeal airway, and bag mask ventilation. Check the patient's blood pressure, their SpO2, their entitled CO2, and the ECG. Again, assess their neurologic status, and if there's not a secure airway, consider intubation if their GCS is less than eight. You should review the chart for comorbidities and medications given. Don't forget to consider those medications they may have been taking again before they came to the operating room. Confirm that your neuromuscular blockade has been reversed. Check a train of four. If appropriate, consider reversal of other medications that have been given, including narcotics with naloxone, or benzodiazepines with flumazenil, or anticholinergic toxicity that you could reverse with physostigmine. Check the patient's temperature, correct abnormalities for a goal core temperature of 37 degrees Celsius. The literature suggests that a temperature less than 35 or greater than 38 might contribute to altered mental status. Next, send an arterial blood gas to assess pH, PCO2, PaO2, hematocrit, lactate, and blood glucose levels. Adjust your ventilation as indicated, give blood or IV fluid, correct your blood glucose. That goal for blood glucose would be a reasonable goal of about 80 to 180. Complete a more thorough exam of the patient with special attention to central nervous system and respiratory system. Consider a CT head or chest x-ray if your exam is concerning. Consider the possibility of underlying sepsis as this may also contribute to altered mental status and delayed emergence. Send off a full set of labs, including a, a complete blood count, a blood, a blood glucose, urea, creatinine, electrolytes, thyroid function test, and correct any of these derangements. And the paper that I reviewed this in said then at this time, if they're still unconscious, you should seek additional help and consider transfer to an intensive care unit. So again, that's just one approach. I think in reality, you can do a lot of these steps quite quickly. Most cases, like I said, in the operating room, we already have a secure airway, we're hooked up to all of our monitors, so you can very quickly gl glance up at your monitor and see the patient's ECG, their SpO2, their entitled CO2. You should be able to see their temperature. We should have a train of four either hooked to the patient or reading on the monitor already um, and at a regular interval monitoring their, their neuromuscular blockade. Um, also, you might be able to intervene on things while waiting for some of those laboratory results. So my personal approach might vary to some degree depending on the situation. And I think it would be important to seek help um, and get others involved early on in the process. For instance, if I was going to consider ordering a CT head on a patient, I think I would have neurology on board um, before putting that order in to get their input as well. But hopefully this was a good overview, at least of the topic of delayed emergence, what some of the potential issues could be, and how you might go about uh, treating a patient in this scenario. So I know it was it was brief, not extremely in-depth, but I hope this is a good start. And if anyone has any questions for me, 
or would like to discuss further, I'm all ears and happy to chat. All right, everyone have a great day. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have ideas for future podcasts, please reach out to us via email at learnonthego at uky.edu. Don't forget to follow us on our social media accounts as well on Instagram and Twitter, UK Anesthesia. From all of us at UK Department of Anesthesiology, have a great day.